what they are able to do uh, is to recognize that there's a, a, a decision to be made, that there are two sides that, that, that to, to, to the conversation, and that even though they may not grasp everything, getting them into that rhythm of questioning, of looking at both sides, of bringing together different arguments is fundamentally important because I think we have a, a serious crisis of truth. Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin Connor, your host. I'm Abigail Visco Russert, co host and co producer. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. This is one of our bonus episodes where we share the full interview we conducted with Professor John Swinton. As a registered nurse and chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, Professor Swinton offers insight about love, empathy, and friendship in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. He invites ministry leaders to consider the confusion and disorientation of this season through the lens of the passion and resurrection of Jesus. This interview was first featured in our episode entitled Trauma and Friendship which also features the insights of Chaplain Lindsey Krinks and ministry leader Reverend Tyler Sitt. We hope you enjoy this full-length interview with Professor John Swinton. Well, my name is John Swinton. I'm Professor in Practical Theology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland in the, in the UK. I've worked here for, I don't know, 22 years, which is about a lifetime. Um, my background was in, was in mental health nursing. I nursed for 16 years. Um, then I worked in chaplaincy for a little while. Uh, and then I moved into academia in what would it be, 1990 or thereabouts. And I've stayed there ever since because I like it there. It's mm. good. Mm. So that's kind of who I am. Thank you. And can you just nod to some of the things you've written, um, maybe some of the books you've written, and share a few of those titles with us? Yeah, well, the area that I'm interested in is in um, theology and mental health and theology and, and disability. So I've written a number of books. Um, Becoming Friends with Time was the last book I wrote, which looks at the relationship between time and disability and the significance of slowness for relationships. Um, I have a new book coming out called Finding Jesus in the Storm, which is look at, looking at the spiritual lives of people with uh, severe mental health challenges. And so it, it's, it comes from a, a research project I was involved with where I had a series of conversations with people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depression, trying to understand what that feels like from the inside and to try to get a sense of um, how that it, it impacts upon people's faith lives, which is really, really interesting. Um, I've also written some books on spirituality and mental health and I, I wrote a book many years ago called Resurrecting the Person which is all about the, uh, the relationship between Christian friendship and severe mental health challenges. So these are the kind of areas that I'm, I'm, I'm pushing into. So being you're ordained in the Church of Scotland. Yes. You're a nurse, you have a background in healthcare chaplaincy um, given your experience with that I'm curious how you would help pastors reflect theologically in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic? Um, where, would you, where would you point pastors to, to really take, I, I know a lot of pastors are in the process of responding and 
they're not necessarily being gifted the time to really reflect themselves. So how how would you how would you invite us into some of that reflection? What tools can you give us? Well, there's a few things that are ways that I would it might be helpful to to think about things. So it strikes me that there's kind of like three things that emerged from this the, the pandemic that I think are important for us to, to think about. And the first thing is that sense of confusion and disorientation and aware that we're having to move into a new norm in that sense. Uh, and it strikes me that there's real parallels there between um, the passion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So if you look at look at the, the passion of Jesus, you get um, Palm Sunday where you have, you know, everybody's really excited, the Messiah's coming, everything's going to go fantastically well. And then suddenly you have the chaos of the cross where everything falls apart. And it looks like everything you, you used to believe has just come apart. And people are completely disoriented. And then you move into the resurrection where the new norm begins to emerge. But the new norm is not like the old norm with a new hat on. It's something completely different. And so people have to readjust to the idea that this new norm is not a matter of looking back to Palm Sunday, but actually thinking about what this new a way of being in the world looks like. And for them, it meant that you recognize death differently, you recognize life differently, you recognize that you're called to be with the marginalized, with the vulnerable, and so on and so forth. So the new norm is very, very different in many ways from what people might want it to be. And I think we culturally, we go, we're going through that just now. People are really keen to get back to the old norm, but I suspect, A, we're not going to get back to the old norm. And B, the old norm wasn't that great. It may have been great for some people, but it's not great for people who are homeless and not great for people with mental health challenges in a society that's highly stigmatic. It's not great for people with disabilities. And so if we simply go back to that, then you have a problem. The second the second thing I would say would be in relation to um, uh, the <laughs> one of the things that was quite funny when I was in Australia, and it's probably the same with you, is when the pandemic kicked off in the first place, uh, there was a real shortage of toilet rolls. Yes. Because, yeah, <laughs> which is, for an airborne virus, it's a rather unusual response. Like. They, um, so the this, 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 this shelves cleared of toilet rolls, and then eventually they cleared of food as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Australia, and the same in America and the UK, there's enough food in the country to feed people three times over. So there was a perception of scarcity which led to a complete uh, lack of generosity because people who were hoarding were actually hoarding from people who were really vulnerable in that sense. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Walter Brueggemann talks about uh, the people of Israel having a scarcity mentality, that they worshipped a God of generosity, but were always terrified of of scarcity. And Pharaoh is absolutely terrified of scarcity. And Brueggemann says, so are we, Uh, because we have so much stuff and the more stuff you have, the more afraid you are of losing that. And I think that the pandemic opens up that space for that conversation as to whether or not we really are generous people, whether whether we are people who live in fear of scarcity or who live generously, even in the midst of significant difficulties. So that would be the second thing that I would, I would say, that it's an opportunity to think about the nature of generosity. Um, but then the third thing I would, I would think about is, when the pandemic began, we were all told we had to, to engage in this 
practice of social distancing, right? Um, now, that's necessary because nobody wants to, to pass on the virus or to catch the virus. But I've noticed that recently our government here, the Scottish government, have stopped using that term social distancing and they use the term physical distancing. And I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I was never comfortable with social distancing. So physical distancing is a, is a health-related term, which means that you have to keep your distance so that you don't infect or become infected. Uh, social distancing is a relational term. It says keep away from the, even the people that you care for and begin to treat people as enemies, <laughs> now, subconsciously. We can see that, or at least as, as sources of infection, which is pretty much the same thing. Um, and one of the things that struck me all the way through this is that the number of people within our society that actually have enforced social distancing for most of their lives. Uh, I met, uh, you know how we have this kind of one-hour walk every day. Um, I, I was out for my one-hour walk. I was speaking to a woman down the road, and she was saying, this, this, this social distancing thing is great, she said, because I've been social distancing for years. People haven't been coming near me. Now everybody wants to come near me. So she says, you know, this, this new norm is great, which is good as long as it lasts. Mm-hmm. But the problem is if we go back to the old norm, then everybody who's been socially distanced from, you know, people who are elderly, people who are uh, uh, perceived to be different, then we just go back to alienating those people that, in, in a real sense, Jesus comes from. So these are the three things that I would, I would put on the table. Thank you. You know, you're talking about really going back to an old, old norms versus new norms. Yeah. And I wonder if you can help us through a lens of theology and disability sort of cast a vision for what a new normal could look like. Well, a new normal, I think, it begins to learn the lessons that we've gained from, from uh, the experience of COVID-19. And part of that is that we have to find uh, different ways of articulating and expressing our love. Because when you think about it, you know, Christianity is all about love, God is love. Um, but love is a deeply embodied thing. You know, to love somebody, to reveal your love to them, you have to place your body in a particular way. You have to have certain gestures. You have to have certain eye contact and various other things. All of these things are beginning to shift and change with the kind of uh, retraining that we've had to go through to deal with the virus. So what does life look like when you can no longer shake hands with somebody that you care for? What does life look like when you um, uh, can no longer have the, the common cup? What does life look like when you can no longer simply go and visit people that you would naturally visit or even unnaturally visit? So my sense is that... Uh, what, one of the things that's happening is that we're beginning to um, have to rethink the ways in which we embody and practice love, which opens up space for innovation because, for example, um, there are some people with certain conditions that have no desire to um, embrace you or no desire to have physical contact with you. In the old norm, you find that really, really weird. And you may avoid that person. In the new norm, that actually might be the way many of us have to be at a particular moment. So we may actually learn how to be with people who uh, articulate their love uh, in a different way uh, 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 because we have to use our bodies in a different way. But there's also, we have to think about you know, the, way, the way that we... Um, if you think about the issue of masks, for example. It looks like we're going to be wearing masks for quite some time. There's a, a really 
beautiful new video by um, Michael Verdi on dementia. Um, and right at the beginning of it, um, there's an a interview or conversation with a, an African-American woman who um, has advanced dementia. And they're having a conversation. And at one point she says, you know, I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am, but I know that uh, I'm hopeful, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then she looks around and she looks up and she looks across at the person who's speaking and says, and I look at your face and I see a picture of love. I see love. And so, I think that's absolutely a beautiful picture of it. Of, 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 you know, we're called to reflect the grace and the love of God. When she looked at this woman, in the midst of her confusion and memory loss, she could see love. Um, and so you could say, well, we must emulate that. We must begin to have our own faces as a picture of love. But what do you do when you've got a mask on? How does your face become a picture of love when you have a mask on? Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about that in the context of of a care home where you're constantly having to um, wear masks because you don't want to infect vulnerable people, it's a completely different way of being. You can can articulate love through your eyes, and that that might be a skill that we have to, to develop. But the fact that your face is no longer available in the context of love is going to be really, really difficult for the way in which you communicate with people, and particularly people that don't have language or who may be confused or who may find these kind of things difficult. So I think that whole way of rethinking the nature of communicating love is interesting. And it's also the question of um, of worship. I mean, what does it mean to worship um, uh, with people through Zoom, I did I did my first Zoom worship service on Sunday. It was very odd. Mm-hmm. One of the things about Zoom is that people tend to look at themselves rather than look at the people that they're talking to, or, or look behind them to see what kind of books they have there. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have a <laughs> you have a worship service where you have a, a temptation just to look at yourself all that time. Mm-hmm. But so, so it's a different but. but you get used to that, and it's a different way of worshiping, and there's lots of good things to come from that. But I did speak to this woman the other day, and so I thought this was really interesting. And she was, how uh, she has a daughter who has Down syndrome, and she'd been speaking to a group of people with intellectual disabilities, uh, and they were saying that um, they've got computers, they can work Zoom, but they can't really get it sorted out properly to be able to participate in the, the Sunday service. So what they've been doing is a group of them have been going down to the church on a Sunday morning, uh, and the minister does his service from the church, but then uh, uh, puts it out via Zoom or via the internet, whatever way. And so for the past three months, this minister has been preaching to this group of people with intellectual disabilities alone in this church. As you're saying, it's been fascinating to see the way that he's changed. The way that he communicates is different. The way that he thinks about things is different because suddenly his congregation have become completely different. The normal congregation are at a distance. He knows they're there, but the people who are normally kind of pushed to one side or excluded are now the people he has to talk to every week. There's something very powerful in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Professor, I wanted to follow up on what you were talking about, about love and I'd I'd like to throw in actually love and empathy because in this moment it feels like we're called to really love one another and take care of one another I mean there's no greater love at this moment during COVID than to be physically distant like you said to to 
you know, try to help our neighbor in the best way that we can. All the things that we're told we're supposed to do, we're supposed to do. But yet in this moment, we we have politicized it here in the U.S. We have pushed people away. We have acted as though it doesn't exist. I, I actually um, say we're in three pandemics, um, yeah. but for the but for our the sake of our podcast, it's two. But I mean, for a lot of us, the pandemic began January 2016. Uh, the racial pandemic has been ongoing and the COVID pandemic is March or yeah. February. And so for me, these three pandemics say so much about how love is something we say, but never do. And empathy is something that isn't, I guess it's an ideal. I'd like to think it's achievable, but it feels like an ideal because we've, we've like, we figured out a way to make COVID political. And I don't know how we do that, but yet I do know. So I'm wondering what, what you are thinking, what's going on um, with you, you there are you seeing some similar things? Um, what you think of us in the U.S. around this, and what what how do we when when you're actually really called, and when it's a matter of life and death, and we can't reach the heights to actually love our neighbor? What that what is that? Who are we? Because I have a very good question. Who are we? <laughs> Who are we? It's, not for, it's not for me as an outsider to tell you the truth. <laughs> you have to work out for yourself. Okay. <laughs> I'll ask my but, therapist. <laughs> I'll be your therapist if you want. Right. I, well, see, I think um, empathy is interesting because um, empathy is the imaginative projection of uh, uh, your thinking and feelings about something that's going on outside of yourself onto somebody else in another situation. And so you need to have a certain kind of imagination to be to empathise. And so but imagination doesn't come to you from nowhere. Imagination, you, you get your imagination from culture, from religion, from philosophy. So imagination is that it kind of contains the ideas, the concepts, the values, the plausibility structures, what you think is plausible, not plausible within a, a, a context. Um, all that goes into making up your imagination. So... It's not really, and, and imagination is central to empathy, so it's not really just a matter of we must be more empathetic. Mm-hmm. You also have to have a different kind of imagination. So if you have a context where people's imaginations have been fired and fueled by uh, negative things or difficult things or things, whatever things, I, I won't name it because, I'm, like I say, I could talk to you about the UK more than I can talk to you about the, the US. Sure. But if you're constantly being... Uh, bombarded with with messages through social media and through uh, television and stuff, you create a particular form of imagination which you then use to empathise, that is, to reach out beyond yourself to try to understand what other people are doing. And and that's where the problem is. Because if you can't actually empathise in a way that reflects the reality of what you're looking at, but only reflects the reality of what you've been taught to imagine, then you have all sorts of difficulties. Mm. And so a lot of the, the political rhetoric around um, uh, COVID, for example, the idea that it's, it's, it's a mild flu and all these things, people take that on board. Mm-hmm. And then, then they project that onto people who are ill and think, well, it's, it, you know, it's, it's just, it doesn't particularly matter. And it's certainly here at the beginning of the pandemic, the general consensus from the government was we need to develop a, a herd mentality, which basically means that a high percentage of people need to get it and die before we, um, for everybody can be kind of become immune to it. And then suddenly they realised that um, 
that would mean that a significant number of the population would die. So we decided not to do that, thankfully. Um, but you still have got people saying, well, actually, it's not so bad because it's only people with pre-underlying conditions that mm -hmm. catch energy, or it's only the elderly. Uh, and that was a kind of, that's, that's one way of alleviating your anxiety, it's true. But when you think about what you're saying there, is that, that's ah, okay, it's only the weakest amongst us, like, I'm, I'm strong, so I should be fine. Um, and if you have that as the way that you're looking out on the world, then you do have a problem. And I think that politics uh, and politicians very often have that problem, that they, they don't have the right kind of imagination to be able to see what's going on. In a, uh, or maybe they see what's going on, but don't particularly mind because they have other important things to to work themselves through. But that idea of imagination and empathy, I think, empathy is important. And I think what, what, the, what the gospel should be doing is given as a new mode of imagination. When Paul talks about transforming our minds, that means you're taking the, the gospel narratives, the stories, the perspectives that are taught to you through the history of the Christian tradition and allowing that to cleanse your mind, to, to reshape and reform it. So that when you look at the world, you see things in principle through the eyes of Jesus. And that, that, to have your mind transformed is that way, to really to see with the eyes of Christ. Um, the question that all of us should ask ourselves, do we do that? I want to jump off from there and um, ask you a question about friendship, because the one of the other people that we interviewed for this episode, Lindsay, who I mentioned, talks all about the people she serves and and ministers alongside. And as she does that, she talks, she uses this language of friendship. And we would love for you to help us think theologically about Friendship, why is friendship important and or significant in the Christian life, in the Christian story? Well, I think it, it, one of the main reasons it, it's uh, important is because Jesus marks friendship out as, as uh, or renames uh, discipleship as friendship. So in John's Gospel, he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. So therefore, they have a, at that point, they have a complete change of identity from people who are simply serving God to people who are friends with God. Uh, and that's pretty radical. That the God of the, who creates the universe and enters into it in, in humility and then offers friendship to human beings is, is a very powerful thing. And then if you look at the kinds of friendship that Jesus had, it's, it's always with the poor, the marginalized, the outcast in that sense. So Christ-like friendship is not based on the principle of like attracts like, like in the same way as perhaps our friendships are. We tend to become friends with people quite like ourselves. Um, but but the, the principle of the incarnation is that, that God, who is radically unlike human beings, becomes a human being and offers friendship. So friendship is the, the basic um, building blocks of the kingdom of God. But it's not just any kind of friendship. It's Christ-like friendship. And so we take the shape and form of, of our friendship from Jesus, and then we take that friendship into the world, which is difficult because people don't necessarily want that. You know, Christ-like friendship is very, very difficult. It's, it's sacrificial. It's a matter of giving yourself in ways that, that are really difficult. But it is the way in which you begin to reveal who God is mm. or manifest who God is. Now I want to kind of open back up this idea of pandemic as well, um, thinking specifically about the way that we've been talking about systemic racism in the U.S. And 
I, I know that this is not limited to the U.S. Um, there's just worldwide racial injustice. And I'm curious, Professor, as to how you would how you would direct pastors and ministers to think about preaching, serving, ministering in this moment. How do we garner strength and courage to act? And what does that action look like? What can what is the shape of that action? Yeah, this is a very good question. I mean, every every country has racism, and every every country's racism has a different shape and form. So. Racism in America takes the shape of your history. So it's different from racism in the UK, which is a different history, but it's no less profound and no less powerful for that. But you do have to, the contextuality of the issue does matter. You know, the fact that in, in the, uh, the US you talk about black churches and white churches, in the UK or certainly in Scotland, you, you wouldn't be talking like that because churches are just churches. And if they if they become black or white, it's just because it happens to be a, a group of people that are in the, in the in the city for that length of time. So it's, in other words, it's not a, a marker of identity in that way. Um, but I, I think one thing that that, that um, pastors can can think about is to find the common ground. Now it seems to me that the common ground that, that and we're talking about I'm talking about in Christians the common ground that we we all inhabit is our Christian identity. So we are who we are in Christ. Um, and every other identity that we have is secondary to that. It comes beyond that. But in Christ, there is no uh, male, female, Greek, uh, uh, black, white, whatever. It's bit, Paul's really so clear that in Christ, everybody is just who they are in that sense. So that's a, that's a shared Christian identity. When it comes to issues of, of race, then that's something that we create as a culture. So it's, it's something that that's ingrained in us. It's something that we would learn, but it's also something that we can learn not to learn to look at in different ways. If we embrace first of all our Christian identity, then these different identities, uh, racial identities, or, or or cultural identities, or class identities, look very very different because they are not who we are. Who we are, who we are in Christ. They are uh, who we. They are the places that we live out our lives. So issues, issues of justice are fundamentally important. They're fundamentally important for the church. But when the church gets involved with issues of racial justice, it needs to do so as the church. And so, getting that central identity right, and then we can probably have a more hospitable conversation, uh, because we're not simply talking about dichotomies. We're talking about a unity that reaches out to trying to find healing in the midst of fragmentation. We want to follow up on, you mentioned worship earlier, and we've actually spent a lot of time talking about worship in all of our interviews, you know, never mind what the overarching topic is. And so we found ourselves asking this as a question, kind of as uh, almost a, we ask it as we ask what your name is, is protest worship? Right. It's just become a theme. Like, I think because of what's happening in the U.S., I mean, like our protests have not let up. 
Um, our Atlanta just did a Atlanta, Georgia did a state of emergency for many, many reasons. One of which was like the downtown is pretty much decimated at this point. My sister lives there. So the protests have been pretty, you know, steady, um, steady in numbers. And if you think about a month or so month and a half of just constant protests, it's pretty, people are holding their own. They're not backing down. Um, and so our question is, is protest worship? what you think of that idea um if you if you agree that it is or isn't why um, well i think uh, i begin by saying that all worship is protest mm-hmm. in the sense that it, it, it proclaims something radically different from the way that society is but also acknowledges that society is not the way that it should be so to engage in the practices of worship is, is in, in a sense to, to engage in, in spiritual protest. Um, to, whether or not protest is worship, it would depend on um, what the goal is and, and how people function that. Mm-hmm. So worship is a place where you come together to worship the living God, the God who is love and grace and peace. If you have a protest where you have um, violence or uh, criminality, it's difficult to equate these two things mm. with uh, that the, the way in which we would normally understand worship. That's not to say that, that people shouldn't be outspoken and shouldn't be very strong in their views. But if you're going to say protest is worship, um, then it has to reflect the God whom you worship. And there's plenty of scope in Scripture for all sorts of ways to do that. So it's, it's, it's subversive. And protest is subversive and worship is subversive. Uh, and there are points where you can come together for that. But I guess you've always just got to remember that if you're going to say protest is worship, then you know, it needs to reflect the God that we do worship in that way. But it is a, it's a place where you meet God. It's a place where God clearly is. Uh, and worship, to, for me, is much, it's much more than simply singing songs, um, formal prayers, or church services. It's a way of being in the world whereby everything that you do and think, every way you act, in some senses, has to reflect the God that you worship. So in terms of protest, it makes perfect sense that if you're there, um, if your heart is in the right place, uh, and if you're fighting for justice in the name of Jesus, then clearly that would be a mode of worship. I I have a another question that sort of jumps off of this, you know, holding intention this oh, particular call that so many people feel to pray with their feet, um, which is a phrase that was used in one of our other interviews for this episode. Um, for people who feel called to pray with their feet and who are at the same time of course, navigating <laughs> the wearing of masks, um, the the COVID nineteen moment, and so there's this. We've reflected with some of our interviews about the space that's been created in COVID nineteen for people actually to have the um, energy, and that energy can flow from lots of different places. But but that the energy to respond to systemic injustice. Um, by acting, by getting out in the streets, by protesting. And there's some, you know, there's some controversy around that. And, and I, I would love for you to, to speak to that. I'm in, in reading your bio, you, you talk about developing modes of care 
that are genuinely person-centered. So how do you enact sort of pastoral modes of care that are human-centric, that are person-centered, when when to, people feel pulled by these two things? Um, you know, I should wear a mask, maybe I should stay home, maybe I should protect myself because of COVID-19, but this is my moment to get out, to pray with my feet. Um, can you just kind of take us into some of the complexity there? Well, it, as, a, as a chaplain. Because, uh, well, be, it's complicated because um, it, it's absolutely right that people should be protesting. Um, yeah. However, the problem is if, if you're protesting and if you're actually putting other people's lives at, at risk, then you, you, you have to make a, a moral decision as to whether or not you think that's appropriate or inappropriate. And that, to some extent, that's an individual decision because people make their own decisions. I mean, I was quite struck by the Black Lives Matters um, marches in Aberdeen that people socially distanced in a very, a very kind of orderly way. So they made their point without putting other people at mm -hmm. risk. Um, and so, um, and un unlike <clears throat> in in London, where it was just masses of people that did lots of things, people were wearing masks and not. Um, so. <sighs> It's, I think I think that's it's a really it's a, it's a difficult one because you can't uh, by staying at home and not doing anything, you run the risk of allowing injustice to go unnoticed. Mm -hmm. By going and protesting uh, in close quarters with other people, you run the risk of either infecting others and, or being infected yourself. Now it strikes me that it's, it's the lesser of two evils in some senses. You know, it's, it's interesting when, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who was involved with the uh, plot to kill Hitler, uh, and uh, you know, at one level he, he knew it was kind of the right thing to do. At another level he knew it was absolutely the wrong thing to do. And the way he, he kind of worked with it was that he, um, he, he was involved with this but at the same time, he had to take responsibility and ultimately had to take uh, responsibility before God and that God ultimately would judge him for the decisions that he makes and he made in relation to that. And I, th I get the sense he always was kind of uneasy about, you know, whether it had been the right thing to do. So my sense is that um, either way, uh, you're, you risk um, causing harm. You just have to work out what what's the more what's what you think which of these two things causes less harm. It's, it's an ethical and moral dilemma, but people should think about it rather than just doing it. You think about what you know why you make these kinds of decisions. It's really really important. You know, I was thinking quickly when you said that it is a, it's a tough ethical and moral dilemma. I'm thinking about my my. I have two um, boys, professor. They're ten and twelve, and they wanted to uh, come protest with us. And we, we went to three protests, um, kind of in a row, three in a row, a couple Sundays and Mondays maybe. And I remember thinking, well, these are two black boys in the world and they should protest. But I was also a little worried about like crowd size and COVID and all the things. So we just sat and spoke with them about some of the confusion that even as adults we have so that they yeah. we decided even at this tender age which we normally probably wouldn't do we would just say you go or you don't we were like do you want to go yeah, yeah. Hmm. because it felt like the right thing to give them that agency because i do think it, it's personal especially for my older 
it, he's starting to learn some of this language around race. And he was like, you know, what? I don't want to go. I'm going to just kind of sit here and do whatever he wanted to do. And then when we come back, we had a discussion about it. So I think there's so and that's just a very small example of the kind of thoughts you have, because it was all related. Yes, COVID. Yes. Um, yeah. Just this emotional involvement in being a little black boy in America at this time and trying to work through his own ideas about what this looks like. So we're, we're actually talking about it quite a bit. We're talking about it quite a bit. And I, I worry about what he's thinking and not saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's really, really good Mm -hmm. because I think one of the major skills that we need to learn ourselves and teach our children is, is the art of of critical thinking because we live in an age where truth is really becoming more and more difficult to discern, um, and quite deliberately so. And so for kids to be able to make their own decisions like that and to, to be able to weigh up things, even if in some senses they won't be able to because they're complicated issues, what they are able to do is to recognise that there's a, a decision to be made, that there are two sides that, that, to, to, to the conversation, and that even though they may not grasp everything, getting them into that rhythm of questioning, of looking at both sides, of bringing together different arguments is fundamentally important because I think we have a, a serious crisis of truth within uh, within the world. It's not simply an American thing. It's a, it's a, it's a worldwide thing. So I think you've, you've done well with your kids on that. I think that's exactly the right thing to do. So I'm curious, Professor, as to where you see God moving in the midst of the multiplicity of pandemics that we are facing, where do you see God moving? Well, I, I, I that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. Now, my general sense is, if, in a UK context, I see God is, in some senses, restructuring or thinking about the church. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, um, three we've, we've been in lockdown now for three months. And in three months, uh, is more than enough time to get rid of old habits, positively or negative, including, I suspect, the habit of going to church. Mm-hmm. So uh, it may be that, uh, that God is expanding the church uh, by uh, enabling us to you know, begin to use electronic media more um, effectively, by calling attention to the fact that we uh, have to recognize our neighbors. It's social distancing. Opens up that space where we can realize how many people are social distanced under normal circumstances. And calling the church, I think, to a ministry of healing in a different way. I don't mean that like curing. I mean by opening up spaces within society where there's the possibility of reconciliation, where people begin to, I mean, the, the whole, the whole um, worldwide response to the killings in the States seems to me to be opening up space for worldwide healing where wounds that have been closed down and shut down for many, many years, suddenly they're opening up and people are free to speak in new ways. Yesterday I did a, I did a, I did a seminar for some theological ed- educators uh, and I was speaking to two black theologians from Birmingham and they were saying that they've never had a, such a, a they've never had a better opportunity to really to talk about race and to help people to see the significance of white privilege. Uh, they've never had that before. But with the virus and with the the, the um, 
the Worldwide Black Lives Movement and everything that goes with that, uh, they found a space there that they can talk about things. They found a language that is now understood by other people that wasn't understood before. So I think these kinds of things, and people are talking about things in ways that they didn't haven't done before. Um, and so I think these, these, kind, these kind of areas are, are, are opening up. And it's going to be really interesting, certainly here, to, to see what happens when churches open up again, mm-hmm. which actually won't yeah. be for quite some time because the, 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 the regulations are very difficult to, to adhere to. Um, uh, and even if we do, we're not allowed to sing. So what, mm-hmm. what does church look like? Or what does worship look like when you when you can't sing or raise your voice, but you can raise your hand? So it, we have an opportunity, I think, to to restructure and rethink. And it would be a shame if we just simply slotted right back into the way things before, because I think we've learned a lot of new things uh, through this process. So I think that the, the challenge to the church is huge, but potentially really positive. Thank you so much. Um, I think we're about done. Uh, is there anything more that, you know, if you think about the audience of people we're serving and the arc of this um, story, we're obviously also talking to people who are kind of onboarding into formal ministry, <laughs> maybe staring down graduation from seminary in a year, or maybe just graduated in the midst of a pandemic. Um, is there anything you would say or, or would want us to share with pastors, people who are um, functioning as chaplains right now, or rising ministry leaders? I The only thing I would say is that I think that people who are in positions of spiritual authority have a significant say in what the new norm looks like. So I think that they, you know, particularly people who are coming fresh in for, in for new forms of ministry, bringing in fresh ideas, there's an openness about the way that society is just now, an openness about the way that um, the church is just now, that I think holds real potential for people who come in with new ideas. Um, but I also think that certainly here and probably with you, we're just about to go into a period of real um, recession and financial downturn. And that will be a challenge for the church really to be the church and to open up to become generous in the way that I talked about before, because the need for generosity may be ne- may never have been greater than it will be over the coming months and years. So the, developing that generous spirit and watching out for our, uh, our neighbours in distress is another aspect that I think is crucially important. Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. You can learn more about Princeton Theological Seminary at ptsem.edu. Thank you for joining us.